Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Kova. And I'm Kikita Kaori, or Jeannie Calvar, and we have a special guest today. Uh, we have Shannon Calvar, who is a great GM, a accomplished game writer, and also my husband. So I thought I'd invite him on the show today. Completely unbiased opinions, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. He's the best. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So basically we're bringing you on because we are interested, as people who play Legend of the Five Rings, about things that aren't just combat adventures and investigation, which I think a lot of people are very familiar with, but setting up social conflict and social games and how we can do better ourselves in our own games. Mm-hmm. That's been a fascination of mine, actually, for a long time. It's actually Kikiori Genies. I, I, I won't say fault, uh, but we were sitting around talking at one point, and I had this idea that I wanted to run the Court of the Shining Prince mm-hmm. as a game. So yeah. I wanted to have a game about the tale of Genji and what would it be like to be in a court where courtly skills. And interpersonal relationships were more important than your combat abilities. And the big challenges are about your emotions and doing the things you need to do for your communities. And I came to this realization that not only was that a great idea, I mean, we were just talking about it, but I had no idea how to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, I just didn't know. Uh, So that's how I got started on this path actually. Uh, almost 10 years ago now? It's so. been that long. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why don't you start out by telling us about yourself as, as sure. a game master and how long you've been game mastering and some of the sure. stuff that you have published, because you've been doing this for a while. Okay, I have been. Um, <laughs> so it was my 11th birthday, <laughs> and my mom bought me this strange red box with a dragon on it. Yep, I know that one. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And she said, let's play Dungeons and Dragons. And she had no idea what she was doing. But she tried to game master our first session. And my twin brother and I were about as effective as any set of 11-year-olds ever is. uh, I would like to say that it went great and it was an amazing experience. Um, I believe my mother still has flashbacks to it. Um, (laughs) But a few days later, I picked it up and started reading it and realized that I could tell stories. And so by the time I was in high school, I had four active campaigns. Um, and I was starting in on, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit of an overachiever. Um, I had a lunch campaign for, uh, Zebulon and Zebulon's guide to the galaxy, Star Frontiers, uh, that we only could play in 15 minute increments. So I started to learn how to tell and build quick, tight scenes, right? Yeah. Uh, cause I really, I literally only had 15 minutes. Uh, and then I had my longer campaigns, one of which is still running. Wow. Yeah, uh, and then I started to write my own game systems. That sounded like a great idea, except for I was terrible at it because I was, what, uh, 
14 at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and nothing, nothing I wrote was any good. I'll just, I'll just, I look back on some of those handwritten notes. And I'm like, what was I thinking? Can I even read this anymore? I can, can I read my own handwriting? Sort of. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I was 14. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. Exactly. <laughs> but I also had sort of an unusual situation where one of my main groups was actually entirely women. Mm. Uh, it was all uh, high schoolers. And that gave me a little bit of a different perspective just to start with, because there was always more interest, uh, not just in the combat side, although everybody enjoyed that, but also in finding out more about the story in the world. Yeah. And so from there, we went into, we went into college, and that was, a, that was a whole old thing. Fortunately, I met my wife through gaming. <laughs> uh, there's a whole story there, but I'll just keep moving. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it was, in, I guess, 1996. Yeah, moving on. Uh, <laughs> but it was 1996, 97, when I first encountered the Legend of the Five Rings card game. Uh, I was sitting, we were in Cleveland, Ohio. That's where we went to school. Uh, with a friend of ours, Brent Keith, and he pulled out this card. And I, I, the first card he showed me was Kikita Tashimoko uh, from the Imperial Edition. Mm. Uh, if you can remember that imagery. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And so I was part of L5R, nowhere near as much as uh, Kikita Kaori, but, you know, I've been a part of L5R for a long time. When third edition D&D came out, I realized there was an opportunity there to actually write professionally. And so yeah. I spent some time as a writer for Mongoose. Uh, you know who Mongoose Publishing is. And I wrote, uh, I wrote in their Quintessential series. Uh, I wrote for their Babylon 5 series. Uh, I wrote a few of the Encyclopedia uh, Magicas, uh, Star Magic, which is a magic system I've been running forever, a couple of the others. And that started to give me an understanding of kind of the pace you have to go at to write professionally. In time, I realized being a game writer is probably not a good way to, you know, feed your family. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, but I went back to IT, but I continued to be fascinated by questions of how do we model different kinds of stories and game mechanics, right? Yeah. How, do we, how, do we tell, how do we tell a story? How do we make it a game? How do we use the rules and the language of rules to allow us to do something different. And that was really driven home to me during my writing years. Um, because in D&D, you have combat and you have character building. Mm. Both of which are fascinating games. Get, don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah. It, it, it's a good time. But there's more. We could do more. And so that realization then began to lead me to other realizations, most of which had made no sense at all. <laughs> but eventually then led to this conversation, right? About how, if, if, how would I run The Shining Court? Yeah. Have you read The Tale of Genji? I have not. Okay. Um, I've, I've, I, know, I know about it. So okay. basically, this is the Heian era, which is from 794 to 1185. And this is when, at the beginning of it, the aristocracy run Japan, essentially. This, uh, by the end of it, that's, that's when the samurai come into it and, and all that kind of stuff. And the tale of Genji is very much the tale of the son of the emperor who himself is never going to become emperor because of this stuff and things. And it's his love life and the, the women he meets and falls in love with and doesn't fall in love with and who they meet and, and so forth. And it's, it's very, it is very emotional and it's, very, it's to do with those romantic entanglements 
not so much the kind of uh, taking over castles and making war and stuff like that. It, it's all of that. Plus, it's assumed underlying all of that is that yeah. all of these aristocrats are doing their jobs. Yeah, yeah. And their jobs aren't just to hang out and talk. They have responsibilities to the court, to each other, uh, to the greater country, to the armies that are marching in the fields, to the shrines that surround and permeate the world, to, the, to what we would call the kami in L5R, but mm. to, to the sense of the spiritual world. So yeah. these individuals are living their lives. I mean, there's a whole great story about who gets the kittens, right? Uh, who gets the empress's kittens? The empress's cat has kittens. Who gets the kittens? It's, it's like 100 <laughs> pages. But, <laughs> but underlying that is this sense of what are these people really doing, right? And so as I tried to imagine what that would be like, we started to explore different ideas. What would it mean to have influence in a court? Mm. How would you get influence? What kind of behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable? How do you manage the conflicts in those relationships between yourself and others, between yourself and your responsibilities and duties, between yourself and the supernatural and natural worlds? Yeah. Uh, how could we make that an interesting game? So, so if you were a game master and you were trying to start thinking about these kind of games and wanting to introduce them to your players, how do you get your players out of the today's dungeon crawl mode and start getting them thinking <laughs> about these games? And how do you start thinking about the, these games? Where, where should a GM begin to come up with these stories? Um, it starts with what is the group trying to do together. Mm. So not in this case, I'm actually talking about your play group. The actual people. The actual the people, yeah. not the characters, the people. Because there are some groups for who this is not ever going to work, right? These are groups of tacticians who are very much there to involve and enjoy themselves with the combat aspect of the game. And that's fine, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I get that way myself. That's not my yeah. basic mode, but I, there, there are days when I sit down, I'm like, okay, I want to, somebody give me some goblins. Um, yes. <laughs> it's been a rough day. I want some goblins. Give me some, give me some 10 foot corridors and some goblins. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there, hey, that's a fun game. But... When I sit down and I look and I talk to the players, you have to begin to understand what kinds of conflicts are they really looking to resolve? Are they looking to begin from a place of, I am fighting, or are they really looking to build something with you, mm. build a story? And if it's really about building the story, not about beating up the goblins. And you know, full disclosure, I will always slip a little... There's always a little subscene somewhere, maybe not. It's usually one every three or four games where there's some, there's some goblins or something to beat up, okay? Yeah. It, it's okay. But if you're looking at building a story together, then things can start to change. And it's not about whether you're an actor, game master, you know, a real role player or a, <laughs> a killer DM or whatever it, you know, whatever it is your, your, your theoretical type is. It's about do you want to build the story? If you do, then we can begin to address the question of how are you limited by the game system that you have, right? right? If I tried to do this in D&D, &D, 
then I have exactly two effective games I can play. Mm-hmm. Combat and character building. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you technically do have social skills in that there are skills that you can roll. Right. But there isn't much in the way of mechanics in what that means. If I roll my, my diplomacy, I think it's called, mm-hmm. there isn't as much game mechanics as there is for when I roll to hit with my longsword, for right. example. Absolutely. And that individual's role, that NPC's role, is either to be a damage sponge or an information sink, yeah. right? Either I'm trying to talk them into tell, doing something for me, something immediate, yeah. or I'm trying to get them out of my way in some way in order to advance the story. Yeah, get, get information from them or get an action, get them to do an action, yeah. Right. And, but that's really limited when you start to ask stories about how, are my, how is my character impacting this other character's relationship with themselves and others? relationship with their selves and their duties, relationship with themselves in the natural and the supernatural, right? Mm. I don't have mechanics to express that. Remember I said earlier, I have a fascination with how can I open that game space up to create new kinds of stories, new kinds of opportunities? And in a game, there has to be uncertainty, right? Yeah. There has to be kind of give and take. I have to have some level of risk. The game has to not end, Right. This is a role playing game. If, if I fail at a board game, the board game eventually comes to an end. If I fail in a role playing game, that's just yet another opportunity to do something different. Yeah. To, you, you, you didn't tell the story of how we successfully broke into the castle. Mm-hmm. We now have a new story of how do we escape the, the, dun- the prison we're in. Right. Or uh, let's take this into more of a social situation. I didn't get an invitation to go to the Lord's Cuden so that I could have a conversation with his Castilian yeah. uh, so that potentially I could have a meeting with the guy who can get a bridge for my village. What do I do now? Mm. <laughs> um, I can't get to them this way. How can I get to them some other way? If I could, success, let's say I could successfully talk to, in L5R terms, it would be uh, Mia Harold. You know, somebody who manages the emperor's gift. Okay, I couldn't get to him through the local lord, so he's leaving now. How do I convince him? Is he just an obstacle in my way to the bridge? Or is he also a person with his own relationships, with his own duties, with his own interactions? Do you, do you see? Yeah, I, yeah. So when I'm thinking about these games, how do I get people interested? It starts with the story. And then I have to come up with a way to anchor and invest my players in the story. So the first iterations of this system, focus, of my way of thinking about it, focused on influence, right? How do I gain influence? How do I lose influence? Who do I mm-hmm. use it to talk to? But I realized I wasn't able to anchor players, just exactly to your point, right? How do you get them interested? So I realized I needed to create a way of making it so there was something the players cared about, and the characters cared about that had needs, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That they needed to meet. And that's actually where we get to the concept of prosperity. How do you model a community? How do players, how do characters interact with and have duties in that community that create over time actual events that drive that story? 
right? I call that a story engine. Yeah, yeah. So is that where the games get stakes by, you know, you, you say, okay, you, you, you invest time in a, a community and then now, now you have something that, that gets potentially hurt. How do, how do you basically make these kind of games intense or exciting, like influence or, or prosperity or any of these? How do you, how do you ratchet up the tension? Well, it, it's hard because it's outside of our normal framing, right? You're absolutely right in that it's about the time that you put into it, but it's also about the emotional connection, right? You build a community, but the community isn't just a set of numbers. It's NPCs that the characters interact with over and over and over again. It's a series of events that the players have already influenced through their actions so that uh, there is a stake. You have spent some time with it. You've invested time into it. And that investment then becomes compromised or uh, has an opportunity to expand quickly based off of your actions and, and other random events. Let me give you an example. Uh, I have a group right now who is running in a villagers in a village campaign, and they are all in on trying to build a barley mill. Right. Because they actually have barley. And if they can build a barley mill, they can begin to advance the fortune of their community so that they, one more importantly to them, uh, have some op- additional opportunities, but also because their community's fortune is fairly low. And I am always explaining and describing every, se- every session, every scene, I'm describing how that low fortune is making people hungry, uh, how they're having trouble buying the things that they need. Uh, and so the NPCs they're interacting with are having challenges. And they're able to say, I can take this kind of discrete action it's going to take me a lot of work, but we can work together and get this barley mill together, and that will improve the community. And as they do that, I change the way I describe the environment, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that then gives them a sense of progress because it's, they're actually making progress. They can see the numbers ticking off on the board. They can hear the description changing. They see the NPCs they are working with also changing as they act. Did that make sense? Yeah. No, it, it, no, it really does. I know I've I've played a few games that have elements like that. Ars Magica is one where you build a community of wizards. Yep. And yeah, you do build up these relationships, not just with the NPCs, but but literally if if your character is part of I don't know expanding the library, mm-hmm. that player becomes kind of attached to that library and wants it to be better and will chase down opportunities that threaten it or that could make it better or or things like that and they they will then have their characters kind of go off on adventures or or whatever in order to to deal with that absolutely and because i'm 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 really more of a game system guy i'm not a good actor i'm not um you know i i tend to make it so that my systems will provide me with those opportunities Right. I mean, I try to build it so that those things happen naturally as a result of the game engine running rather than me. I'm often not terribly creative. I'm not a very good actor. So I want I want to have support to make that work. Yeah. A a good system actually takes a lot of burden off the GM. I I hear a lot of people kind of say, oh, you don't need a system for that. You can just you can just wing it. 
But that's a lot harder than I think some people realize. And having a good system really can help. It, it absolutely can, but it has to be the right approach, yeah. right? If I build a social system or if I build a court system so that it is a persuasion system, right? Yeah. So I have, I have debates that I have to win, and I only advance across my court dungeon if I succeed in my debates. Mm-hmm. That can be sort of fun if you were on debate team, which is fine. I mean, if that's the way you want to run your game. But that system won't support what I just described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I will always be fighting in this empty space to try to tell the story I want to tell. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it does mean, I'll use another example. Uh, I wrote a Hogwarts game system, which is entirely about managing your stress to get good grades. <laughs> which is which sounds weird, right? No, no, no. It sounds absolutely correct, actually. Uh, well, exactly. Once I say it out loud, <laughs> um, and and so I can run. I, I I have run multiple years of Hogwarts just with people managing their stress to get their grades and a few other things. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Magic a lot. It does a bunch of stuff. Managing stress and the occasional troll. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you should have seen everybody's faces light up when they cast their first Alohomora. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, it was fun. Uh, but my point is, if I think about games, right, that's really what I think about it. So I want, I need to have the right systems. I need to have the right stories. And I need to have that method, that, that kind of triangle to keep my players interested. Yeah. Right? I have to have a good game system. I have to have reoccurring characters. And I have to have the descriptions, and the three have to link together. Uh, otherwise, I can't drive it. Yeah. So if you're trying to do this in L5R, do these kinds of political games only have to happen at Winter Court? Or can these? Can you have these kinds of games in other settings, like for Ronin or low rank Samurai, or for, or for Samurai, but maybe not in the Imperial Winter Court? I mean, how, how would you do this in L5R? Well... In L5R, the games of what we think of as political games, but are really these games of influence and prosperity, happen everywhere. They could happen in a village. They could happen uh, between you and your local lord. They could happen between you and the city. They could even happen if you were a group of wandering magistrates Yeah, uh, charged with moving from place to place. Because you're actually going to begin to experience multiple courts. Indeed, yeah. Right? Now, the challenge there, go back to my little triumvirate, right, is making sure the NPCs and the descriptions and the mechanics all line up together so that it creates a sticky experience. But the game itself continues wherever. Anywhere where you need to play a game that is focused on the relationships between each other, you and your duty, your responsibilities, you yourself and the natural and the supernatural. And those events can happen anywhere. We've done it. I've done it in villages. I've done it in uh, small towns. We've done it in the court of Genji. And there's a certain joy in the high court setting, right? I mean, it's cool. (laughs) It's high stakes and prettier clothes and yeah. better meals and yeah yeah i mean i think it's it's the equivalent of the the high level campaign where everything's bigger and brighter and 
explodes more. And yeah, yeah. it's. I mean, it's fun, but it doesn't have to be there. Uh, I mean, you could you could easily use an example for a adventure. Say you're a group of traveling magistrates. I, tra- I use traveling here in the sense that you're not exactly in your homes and you know, you're, yeah, you're yeah. on it. Um, and you have to go talk to the local lord, right? Very common thing to have to do in these adventures. Well, you could just say, I go talk to my lord, I flash my badge, and I persuade him to do what I need him to do, mm. right? That's a very linear kind of approach. That's your investigation dungeon approach. Yeah. I could say, well, you know, the lord's actually kind of busy, and he's perfectly willing to greet you, right? That's your badge. Mm. But if you want admittance to his court, that costs influence. Oh, you actually want to talk to him. That's a rendezvous. That also costs influence or becomes an action in and of itself. Oh, you actually want to persuade him to do something. Well, you can be persuaded, but that doesn't mean he necessarily can just randomly reassign all of the resources that you need. Because all of those resources are already committed to doing something, right? They, too, remember I was talking earlier about my conflicts. They, too, have duties and responsibilities. He has duties and responsibilities. I can persuade him, but that doesn't mean he can do what I am asking him to do anyways, even if he is the Lord. That also then becomes an influence expenditure. Now, how do I get influence? Well, I might gain influence by dealing with a problem down in the village. I might gain influence by assisting people. I might gain influence by, is it starting to sound like side quests? Um, (laughs) uh, There might be a art competition, and it happens to be that his wife uh, is very much into poetry. And so if I can impress her, that might gain me some influence as well. All of a sudden, I'm gamified through the use of this mechanic. And note that this isn't a high court. This could be a local lord. And by building influence, rather than making it a single act... I've said, look, these people have lives. These people have activities. I need to prove that I can help them get their work done in addition to my own. And that goes back down to that fund- one of those fundamental conflicts I'm trying to understand and model in a game. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so it could be anywhere. <laughs> uh, the, the challenge is kind of opening your eyes and letting yourself see it. So if players are coming to the table and they have not experienced with this and they want to help their GM like adapt to this, what can what can individual players, different kinds of players bring to this kind of a game? The thing that helps the most for the game master or for the players is to stop and ask the question, what would this person be doing? The biggest challenge here is in that investigation dungeon and the combat dungeon mindset. You find yourself regarding the NPCs as obstacles or as, you know, moments along your path. And you don't stop and think to yourself, what would that person really be doing with their time? Yeah, because they basically, they become, you only see them in terms of your mission. Mm Mm-hmm. You don't see them as having any kind of life outside that. And it's very common, you know, you have things that are there to guard the thing you're after or that are, like you say, just an obstacle. But you don't ever think maybe these people are here for some other reason, which has nothing to do with you and nothing to do with the thing you're looking for. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, they, they can be seen as obstacles, but if you think of them as whole people who have their own lives coming, going on, then maybe you can get, get them out of the, either out of your way or actually helping you by some other means instead of just hitting them. <laughs> it, exactly. Um, and it, does, it doesn't have to be, a, you know, you don't have to develop deep empathy for every NPC. But, <laughs> I mean, ideally you would. Yeah, just understanding what they want. Right. Well, not only what they want, but what are they doing, right? Mm. So, so you go into, uh, you're, you're a party of uh, magistrates, and you desperately need horses, right? And you go into the Lord's stable, and you say, we need six horses. Okay, that's great. Uh, you, you can say that to the stable master, and he'll probably look at you like you're insane. But, it, you know, in tra- traditional L5R, you flash your badge, and off you go. In an agricultural society, six horses aren't there randomly for no reason. Whose six horses did you just take? What situation did you just put that stable master in? What are they there for, right? Odds are good... In a small town or a small area, you just took the Lord's elite forces' horses. If there is a bandit attack or something not related, you can't respond now. Um, congratulations. Now, in a traditional game, you wouldn't worry about that. In this kind of a game, I would actually have a, if, some, if a player did that, the kinds of games I, I try to run, you would actually hear about a week later reports of a horrible massacre out on the edge where the Lord was not able to respond to an attack by bandits. I would drive home that your action, that cavalier action, had an immediate and painful repercussion because somebody else couldn't perform their duty. Is that manipulative? Yes. (laughs) But it drives home the point. Jeannie's now thinking of a couple of times that happened. (laughs) So, so... On the other side, you could, if instead of flashing your badge, give me the horses, you went in and said, I, I really need six horses. And, uh, you know, it's not like you wouldn't have the stable master going, uh, I need these horses because these are for my troops. Uh, and then you, you can go and make a discussion with whoever's the captain of the the guards for the castle and like figure out what kind of problems they would need those horses for and then maybe you can go with the guards to deal with the bandits on the edge of town before taking the horses or you can make sure the horses are returned by a certain point or you know you can figure out ways to have them bring in horses from outside of this this keep so that they still have enough horses to get there or give them more troops or you know there's there's ways to solve the problem if you're not just thinking of it as a road bump on your road to riding out on horses mm-hmm. absolutely uh i and going back to our uh, mia example were you to have enough influence you might convince the mia herald and his retinue to stay for an extra two weeks while you were out with the horses uh Use your influence with him that you've built up to say, hey, um, I, I'm going to put this place in danger. Can you help me? Yeah. You know, and mechanically, then I would use influence to express those ideas. Going back to the idea of mechanics opening my game space. So I, does that help answer the question or? I think so. Yeah, no, I, I think it does. It, it's basically to try and, try and summarize, see, make, make sure I've, I've understood it. It's basically 
when as a player you want to expand how you see the not just the npcs but i think everything around you as more than just is it in my way or is it part of my current mission Mm -hmm. and that's going to give you some extra ways of both in game terms and in other terms dealing with the situations you come across and different ways of getting what you need other than the the standard ones of fighting them or just rolling a quick persuasion roll. Right. So moving on from players to GMs, because that's the other side of the table, they also have to adapt to this kind of gaming style. And if someone was interested but didn't really know what, the, what to bring, uh, what, what advice would you give to them? The first thing I would suggest doing is... Asking yourself, what is the story I want to tell? I often find that we get into the hows of our storytelling, right? The scenes and the conflict. But we don't ask ourselves, what are we trying to say together? And we don't ask ourselves why. So step back just for a second. Take a breath. Let it out. And say, ask yourself, what is this story I'm trying to tell? If it really is a story about samurai cutting each other down on the battlefield, that's awesome. Those are great stories. I'm not necessarily sure (laughs) that you're going to be comfortable in this style of story for that story, and that's fine. If, however, what you want to tell is a story about how the people in the game are interacting, that's the first step, right, is figuring out what you're trying to do. The second step is to stop saying to yourself, my game system supports me here, right? Because your game system, uh, I'm just going to say this bluntly, our game systems are designed around persuasion and these interrogation dungeons or dungeons themselves for the most part. Uh, L5R in particular always has been, and that's fine. But take a breath, step back and say, look, how am I going to describe this differently to my players? Mm -hmm. Right? Because... It's a game, this is a game of words, right? My tools are my voice and my gestures when I'm interacting with my players. How am I going to describe this differently? How am I going to describe this in a way that is interesting? How am I going to help my players ask that question, what is this person doing? Think about, I mean, this, was, this was a huge revelation for me personally. I came to the realization that most of my NPCs were standing around when the players showed up. Yep. Like like video game NPCs. Yeah. yeah. I had the, uh, that was a horrible realization for me because I thought I was doing better than that. But I realized that like 90% of my NPCs are basically standing there staring off into space when the players show up. So of course the players like walk right up to them. The next session, the first time they run into their, anta- their main antagonist, this was in the court of Genji, she is basically armpit deep in paperwork at her little desk, trying desperately to keep up with the amount of work she has to do to make sure the garden party happens. And the players come barging into her room. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So the one thing you have to leave is the idea that the PCs are the most important people in the world. Because that's... that's They may or may not be. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they they may actually be the most important, but not to that NPC. Right, yeah. not to anybody else. Exactly. <laughs> and when, once as a game master I got a grip on that, a lot of other things began to flow very easily. 
Uh, so, so my best advice is to step back, think about the story you want to tell with your players. And if the story doesn't involve these things at all, this particular story, that's fine, right? Mm. Yeah. There are plenty of great stories that don't. I mean, there, there's <laughs> the detective genre is awesome for a reason. But if you want to tell a different kind of a story, a story about the world and about the people in it, then start with your descriptions. Because that allows you then to start to, it goes back to that triangle I described. It begins to give life to the NPCs. It begins to give life to the mechanics you're going to use. And it begins to give the players the ability to ask, what is this person doing? And you don't have to be a tremendous actor to pull that off. Right. I was going to ask that because in court settings, it often is assumed that you have to like be able to think on your feet and talk in public very well and and so on but but mm-hmm. how how do you how do you make it so that people who aren't comfortable with that uh, with doing elaborate role play handle this <laughs> well given how often i'm criticized for the lack of role playing in my sessions um <laughs> even by my kids um <laughs> no actually i want to go back to something kovar said right um people who say i can just wing this mm right, are saying effectively, I am a good enough actor to portray 30 or 40 roles, their interactions, their underlying histories, and their responsibilities in the world on the fly off the top of my head. Yeah. I am not that good. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say no one is, but I don't think I am. Yeah. Um, I, I am absolutely certain I could meet that person someday, but um, yeah, that's not me. So, and frankly, if I thought about it that way, which is a, from my point of view, how a lot of people think about it, I think that's horribly intimidating. Uh, um, I mean, I, the first time I tried to run a court well before I came to any of these realizations, I had 150 NPCs that I was desperately struggling to remember their interactions. And oh my goodness, that was impossible. That was the most fatiguing thing I've ever done. And you had to persuade them in lines and chains. And oh, my goodness, it was just it was maddening. So I would say that you need to stop trying to do this off the cuff. I've referred a couple of times to the influence and prosperity rules that um, uh, Kikita Kaori and I have written together. But you, it doesn't have to be those. I'm not trying to plug those. But you have to have some kind of mechanic you can wrap this in. You can create the game space in so that you're not trying to do it all in your head or on note cards. Yeah, yeah. It's too much, right? It is much, much easier for me to say there is a ministry of calligraphy and seals that is run by uh, Doji Aramag in this particular, in the Kikita lands. And Doji Aramag has some number of subordinates. And their job is to stamp travel papers or not, depending upon how much they like you, because, uh, well, let's face it, they don't have to. They do have to, but it could take a day or it could take four months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it is for me to describe the 45 people in the Kikita court who have some level of responsibility to that, right? It is way easier for me to say, uh, I can gain influence with that court by participating in some events, with that ministry, by participating in some events, mm-hmm. then it is for me to say, I need to go persuade these six people. 
in this order. I'm using a little, I'm making a little bit of a bureaucratic example, but there's a reason for that. Believe you have to have a system around this. Otherwise you end up doing what I just described, right? I'm yeah, going to yeah. be, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I just don't know. That, that, that sounds horrible to me. <laughs> and so hopefully that makes sense. You have to build something so you can do this. And you either write it yourself or you use somebody else's. And talking about somebody else's, we've got the influence game and we've got uh, the prosperity system as one way to approach this as a game mechanic. You've talked about the investigation dungeon. You've talked about regular dungeons. Basically, a dungeon takes strings of puzzles and combats. You go room to room in the dungeon, right? And some rooms have puzzles and some rooms have combats. And you get to the end and there's a big boss at the end and you fight the boss and you've won the dungeon, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, shovel the goy coins in your, in your bag of holding, off you go. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, that's where we came from. That's where role-playing games came from. And an investigation game is, is a dungeon. Instead of going from room to room, instead you're going from person to person in the course and room uh, in the course of your investigation, either interrogating a person or searching a room. Yeah. And you keep going or fighting a, you know, flunky along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Doing one of the same things. It's the same thing as a dungeon. It's just not linear in space until you get to the final boss and you fight them and then you win. I mean, that's, that's an investigation dungeon that Shannon was talking right. about. And in defense of that approach, uh, dungeons are basically flowcharts, right? They're adventure mm -hmm. flowcharts. Mm. Um, and that is an easy and understandable and perfectly logical way to organize time and to organize a story. Right. There's nothing wrong. I keep saying there's nothing wrong with it. It, it works. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was saying before about taking load off the GM and, and, and dungeon absolutely does that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is also quite limiting. So a um, influence kind of game, a court, is not a flow chart. It's an org chart. <laughs> mm. You know, it's it's uh, you know it's it's various people you need to get to reach to do things. So you know, in your org chart for your company, you don't go to HR asking how to fix your computer, right? You go to IT to fix your computer. You go to HR for help with your benefits plans, right? Mm. And whether HR is going to help you or not depends on your relationship with people in HR. And so having, and if IT is going to help you and when they're going to help you depends on your relationship with the people in IT. Yeah. And if you have the influence game, then you're basically cashing in your your credit uh to basically say all right hr is gonna like me hr is going to do this for me because i'm gonna spend some of my influence some of my credit from the fact that i'm an awesome employee <laughs> to to help out to have hr help me so that's what so you win influence by being an awesome employee for example <laughs> And then you spend influence by asking other people in this organization, as is said, it's an org chart, to help you do various things. So flow chart versus org chart, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll embrace that idea. <laughs> but uh, the the influence game and the prosperity system, which is trying to make a community to invest in, and then from that come out with different adventures. They are on the Winter Garden, the Kikita website. So you can you can find our, our approach for what it's worth there. And both the influence game and the prosperity system, just like the dungeon, a regular dungeon does, spawns scenes out of them. So maybe your scene is going to HR, but much more exciting. Or your scene is <laughs> being the awesome, being the awesome duelist that impressed the court with their duel and so now everybody's like ready to be your fan and help you yeah. out we will have links to both of those in our show notes if you want to check those out but i think that that's about all the time we have for today so thank you so much for coming on i hope that our fans found that interesting appreciate it thank you for having me um, this week we wanted to, uh, I wanted to give a shout out to our, uh, Redbubble store. If you look for court games on Redbubble, there's some cute kind of merchandise that you can buy with things like our taglines and clan stuff. And he's got it on everything. So, so if you go yeah. to, uh, redbubble.com slash people slash seabass55 slash shop, you can find all kinds of merchandise. But that's it for us this week. Uh, we wanted to call out Fortune and Strife, our affiliated actual play podcast, as well as our friends at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs, as well as a website where you can see and store longer-term information, such as summaries of our podcasts, RPG tools, forums, and more. For our patrons, we have special bonus content like Adventure Seeds, early access to our actual play podcasts. Or online, you can find us at our website, courtgamespod.com. On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. But uh, this is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I've been Korva. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy.